Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Good evening and welcome to the night from us. How you doing? How you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. Haven't gone live once again for a while. I've been so busy out my ears. I know it's not what you want to hear, but that's the truth. I've been a busy, busy dude. Um, this is this is a new experimental format. Uh, I feel really vulnerable trying it. I have no idea if it's going to work. You know, we we talk about so many different things on the show, and I thought, why not try and do something we did over the summer in Israel? Um, the good morning from a show, but just maybe more like. Uh, just sort of a potpourri of everything that doesn't mean we're not going to do the deep dives and not the misfit stuff and all that still do interviews and everything just wanted to add something that was just doesn't necessarily have a theme it's just about talking <laughs> this whole channel is about talking but you know what i mean it's literally just about talking and you know I got a couple of tabs open, so we'll go through some stuff. You know, good good evening, Biz. Welcome, welcome to tonight's show of Night From Us. <laughs> Night from I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know what to call it. It was like Night From Us. What's up, Zach? Welcome. This is a show where I, you know, you know, comments are welcome. Everybody's welcome. All, all things are welcome. We don't have any agenda here. Lots of stuff coming up for you. If you enjoyed the tank episode that we did, we have more coming so much more. There's so much to cover. Uh, another surprise guest in the near future in March. Keep your eyes peeled for that. That's going to be a special surprise. And you'll notice that I put up a video called uh sal b on doyle's first show and i just want to let you know this is um this is a preview of patreon content uh it doesn't have the exclusive content that that makes it a patreon video but it's just sort of like a way of introducing people to some of the stuff that we don't show everybody that's only for patreons if you're a youtube casualty or youtube member depending on depending on the content so um that that will be premiering soon couple new reviews jelly bean reviews of all things yeah reviewed some jelly beans really crazy stuff wacked wicked wild stuff zach says could we possibly talk about the sam hain unofficial 2020 releases the european releases and do you think has something to do with that um I'm not sure. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. I have no clue, man. I don't know nothing about that. Just sounds like some more bootlegging to me. Nothing, nothing strange to see there. Just your run of the mill bootlegging. How dare they? That money should be going directly to Glenn Danzig and Glenn Danzig alone. Um, 
mom what's going on how are you um i'm glad to hear that you were looking forward to that okay let's let's sort of just dive in um i don't have god i don't have a net like i said this is going to be very this is very experimental so just don't so uh you know i i constantly have lots of open tabs up on my my uh desktop and uh you know i just sort of I've got too many tabs open, so I figure we'll get rid of a bunch of them right now. And the first tab we're going to look at, uh, <laughs> oh, God, what am I doing? All right, let's look at this one first. This is interesting. Are you? I don't know if anybody's a Game of Thrones nut fan or was before, before what happened with Game of Thrones. This, um, I found this interesting. Um, George R. R. Martin grew frustrated with Game of Thrones after season five. We all knew that George Martin was was not having it, uh, was, was starting to get really upset with how they were handling Game of Thrones. But I guess that officially took took place um, in the fifth season. So if you if you ever want to know when that derailed, it was, I guess, the fifth season. And he hasn't done that new book since. Everybody's waiting for his new book. You know, there may come a time. He may never finish it, man. He may never finish that new book. Um, I, I don't want to like, you know, like say sound so negative when I say that, but it's just very possible. Um, a war. This is from this is from Slash Film. A war of words. We're not going to read through the whole article, guys. We're just skimming. This is the point of the show. We just skim. Anyone tasked with guiding Game of Thrones from beginning to end had to have expected a daunting hill to climb. But as creators of the hit series, uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss's jobs couldn't have been any easier with the knowledge that the legendary author of the original series intently watched every step they took along the way. Though publicly, he remained diplomatic in his many blog posts. Over the years during the show's run, a new revelation by his representatives is now shedding light on the fact that Martin counted himself among those who were disappointed in the direction the series eventually took. This is what happens, folks. You sell, you license, you, you know, you, you pitch, whatever you, 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 you hand the keys over to another entity that's going to translate it into another medium stuff is going to get lost in the translation and boy did stuff get lost in the translation in game of thrones and you know there was a lot of great stuff and there was a lot of really really bad stuff and um we never really knew where george martin george rr R. martin stood on it and uh now we kind of do according to the popular fan blog winter is coming a new book titled tinderbox hbo's ruthless pursuit of new frontiers includes a chapter focused on the sensation of Game of Thrones. Paul Haas, Martin's representative, had this to say about the author's thoughts on the series. Uh, George loves Dan and Dave, but after season five, he did start to worry about the path they were going down because George knows where the story goes. He started saying, you're not following my template. The first five seasons stuck to George's roadmap. Then they went off George's roadmap. I mean, this is not new news. Like we knew that, right? We we totally knew that. Um, and 
as they say here, to be entirely fair, it should be noted that George's roadmap wasn't actually completed when they were working on bringing the show to its end. In fact, well over two years since the Game of Thrones series finale, the last two planned novels in the series still aren't completed. But I think that's partially because of the series. I think Martin has grown so disillusioned with what happened with his show that he just can't bring himself to finish his series. So um, the end of season five and the beginning of season six mark the point when Game of Thrones began to lose me personally. But the equivalent marker points in the books aren't without their own flaws and shaggy storytelling as well. The full report is worth reading. Oh, man, maybe we should have done a whole report on that. That's that's pretty, pretty juicy um, for its seeming contradiction of information regarding what Martin told Benioff and Weiss about his plans beforehand. But it's clear that the saga controversy of Game of Thrones isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Mean, meanwhile, we're getting a new series. It's called House of Dragon. So, yeah, that's interesting. There's a full report that I really should have done a little bit more diligence. That was part of the problem so that's that so that's it that's that's all we're talking about we're not gonna talk about it anymore we'll go to the comments now let's see if we have any comments in the in the comments here zach says i picked up a copy of the unholy passion uh that were the 2020 releases and they and the actually the sound quality sounds really good and i just didn't know if possibly if it was off some sort of master tape i honestly i don't know i did see I did see some um, some Sam Hain vinyl for sale. I just assume they're bootlegs, man. I, that's what I think. I, I, I'm not, I don't think they are anything other than that. But I don't know. I don't actually know. Um, moving on. Here's a here's a misfits. Here's a little misfits bit. Oh no, this is frozen. This is no good. Here we go. Check this out. Check this out. This is pretty cool. I mean, this is actually old news. I think we even talked about it previously, but I'm bringing it up here just because it passed by my feed and I thought it was interesting. This is from Riot Fest uh, from 2017. So maybe we didn't cover it actually on the show. It's possible that we didn't cover this, but we're going to cover it now. You can bid, I mean, not anymore, but at one point, you could bid on Jerry Only's 1979 Rickenbacker 4001 base. Look at that puppy. Look at that thing. Look what he did to it, man. And you can see all of the different, let's see, let us click on the picture. No, I don't think so. It's not. Uh, Update, the winning bid was $5,238 plus $50 for shipping. For real, you can drop five grand on a broken base. That's like a priceless artifact, but you're not just going to throw in free shipping. I feel like I feel like shipping becomes free when you spend five grand on something that doesn't work anymore. I don't know. Again, the historic value is significant. I mean, look at what he did to this thing, man. This is nuts. I wish we could like go in there with a magnifying glass. Look at this. Look at this base, man. So he like took a black electrical tape and sort of wound bound the strap to the the top part of the body of this guitar that he just totally jigsawed he took a jigsaw and just just cut the crap out of his bass guitar he put on all these different sort of tuning tuning forks or whatever you want to call them tuning picks um this big m for misfits and here's a resin skull uh 
Rocky Kenny, uh, Jerry and Doyle's brother, said that it, it took forever. It, th- these took forever to make. He would have to do it layer by layer, and it could take weeks to make one of these guys. Actually, I think it was Tank who was telling me about this when I had him on the show. Um, looking for something pretty amazing to hang on your wall? There is currently, again, not currently because it's five years old. Uh, there was an auction happening on eBay for what remains of Jerry Only's 1979 Rickenbacker 4001 bass guitar that he used in the early years of the Misfits. Probably, uh, I mean, well, he used it. He probably used it. He, he always played Rickenbackers exclusively, but the bass probably didn't start to look like that until after 1980, 81. That's when he really started to, to customize those those guitars you know so i mean what is interesting is that's a guitar that was played live it was uh a rickenbacker uh a, sort of like a a, a a vintage rickenbacker and it's customized by jerry only it is priceless it is as as, as tank and i were joking if you're a lord of the rings fan it's kind of like narsal man <laughs> the sword you know um I wonder if it came with some sort of certificate of authenticity, says mom. I will tell you, um, I, man, I, that I don't think you need a. I mean, of course, you always need a certificate of authenticity, but you I mean, that is Jerry's base. Like, there's no denying. Could, could somebody have 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 done a, a, a phony? Yeah, but I don't know. I've just seen so many pictures of it over the years, like or what he used to do to his bases. I feel like it's totally real. Um. I mean, the amount of effort that it would take to mock up that guitar. I mean, that, that, that's hours and hours of work to age it and to get it just right for $5,000. I don't know. It just feels like a lot of work for it. When you break down the, the hourly, uh, the, the, the amount of hours that you are doing that, I don't, I don't know if it's worth it. It belongs in a museum, but you can bid on it now and have one of the coolest pieces of punk rock history. I agree, man. The bid was currently at seventeen fifty, but again, it, it, it the total price was at the end of the day was five five thousand two hundred and thirty eight dollars plus fifty dollars for shipping. Wow! As Sophia said in the movie Vanilla Sky, so this is what's become of rock and roll: a smash guitar behind a glass dis, a glass case displayed on some rich guy's wall. If I had the money and a mantle to hang it over, I would bid on this in a heartbeat. I mean, it's definitely a cool artifact to have in your, you know, in in your, you know, little whatever in, in your collection. You, This is what the description was. You are bidding on what is left of Jerry Only's 1979 Rickenbacker 4001 bass guitar. This was played live throughout the early years of the missions. Okay, so he got it in 79. So it wasn't what the first one he had, I think, was a white one. And he got that in 77. This one was got purchased in 79. And then shortly he probably, wow, you know what, man? I bet you that was, this was absolutely one of the guitars he played at the Irving Plaza Halloween show before it was all destroyed, you know, uh, grouted up or whatever. I mean, I would imagine. It can be seen in various states of originality in countless photos and videos. That's true, man. I mean, it's really it's really easy to authenticate it with all the evidence that's out there. First as a typical black Rick with the black hardware and then with a double precision and then with double precision bass pickups. Those were probably suggested to him by George Germain. 
modified batwing shaped tuners, right? Not they're not tuning forks or picks or whatever they're called tuners. Uh, a painted fingerboard with white skull and red bat inlays, uh, and an added headstock attachment complete with rubber skull. It was ultimately smashed at a show and thus retired. We obtained this from a local diehard misfits collector who advised us that he bought the bare body on eBay some time ago. He also said he bought the rubber skull online, which went into the crowd that night that Jerry smashed the base. See pick. Uh, when the collector told Jerry that he had bought this battered base, Jerry sent him a care package full of his old parts, multiple extra modified bat tuners, Rickenbacker uh, bridge and pieces and a P-based style pickup. What you know, again, for all the time you want, like for all like the hate that Jerry only receives in various like forms, like what other fucking guy is like nice enough to like ship to send his to send his friggin' like gear to somebody you know bought his one of his old like guitar bodies. Uh, also included as an original strap and a small piece of material used as the pick guard, a thumb pick, and as an added bonus, an Ernie Ball Music Man hard shell case owned by Danzig bassist Jerry Montano. Oh, Jer fucking Jerry sold this. I think Jerry mentioned that in what, you know, I interviewed Jerry, and I think he mentioned that he had a bass from Jerry. So he must have sold that. He must have sold the bass. Huh, I didn't know it was owned by him. So that's really cool, man. I wonder if this was the guitar that was in uh, AK, AK the Misfits collection. What's up, crazy white boy? How you doing? Mom says, it's crazy considering how much Misfits records go for nowadays. Yeah, you would think that this would go for more, and it just didn't. Hard to believe. Um, Velton says, hard to believe that one point in time that was a Rickenbacker. Yeah. Yeah, almost a shame in a way. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful shaped instrument. I really am a big fan. The back of the neck is fractured. Part of the fretboard is missing, and the side of the body is obviously broken off. Only a small part of the pick guard is included. Pots and knobs are missing. Uh, making the bass playable again would be a challenge. Would be a challenge. How cool would that? Man, is it possible? I think so. I think you could. I mean, you just have to add pickups and, you know, it would require a lot of work, but boy, would that be would that be cool? I mean, it's maybe it's cooler that it's just a broken shattered guitar. What do you guys think? What what would you would you rather have a restored version that you could play, or do you think it's cooler just to have the 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 carcass, if you will? I think it's kind of cool to have just the carcass. Um, please note that the wooden M shape headstock attachment is a recreation made by the previous owner, so it is not. So it was either made by Jerry Montano. Oh, interesting. So that's not originally Jerry's thing, but it looks just like it. The, the M, the M headstock. Uh, please do not mistake this for one of Jerry's newer smash them up bases. This is the base from the Danzig era of the Misfits. Well, one of several. It is the only one pictured in their classic Hollywood Walk of Fame photo. Oh, so this is, so this went on tour in 81. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a historic base to get it for $5,000 to steal. I'll tell you something. No joke. If I had the disposable income, if I had it, it had to be disposable income. What does that mean? Money that I can afford to spend. 
if I had money that I could afford to spend, I would buy it. I would absolutely buy it. And, you know, being a giant fan of this band and whatnot, I mean, I think it, I think it would be a logical purchase for me if I had disposable income. So I, I would do it. I would buy it. And then I would, um, I would mount it in some really cool way, like above the mantelpiece, maybe. I don't know. Something like that could be fun. Could be fun. Would be fun. Should be fun. Zach says, um, I finally, finally seen the interview you did with Mike Hideous. Uh, my friend Scott drove up to New York and bought Doyle and bought Doyle's Batwing guitar for the 2000. Got to play. Play it was a monster before Scott resold it. That's cool. Crazy white boy would buy it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just the logical thing for us to do, right? Like, that's what we would do. Okay. Okay, on to the next thing. We got, we're going to keep it. We, we got to keep it moving here, guys. Keeping it moving. None of this. None of this. Um, not going to sit here and ruminate on, on things. Up next. Oh, no. Why did I X that out? Dang. Up next, we have, like I said, just a random stream of things. By the way. Did you guys see the new banner that Sharpie made uh, from Riotstickers.com? We'll talk a little bit more about it uh, at the um, at the break, which will be next. Which will be next. Okay. Okay, here is an article called Yoko Ono did not break up the Beatles, but she did help invent alternative music. And we're just going to skim. We're not going to sit here. We're not deep diving on any of this stuff, okay? We we are simply here to um, just go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, 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 thing. thing. Uh, there he is in the comments. Sharpie is seeing the, the glorious banner. I found a nice place for it. Got a spotlight on it. It's good. I'm really happy. I'm really, really, really happy with it. Really, it's it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Thank you again. Yoko Ono didn't break up the Beatles. Uh, wrong. Uh, but she did help invent alternative music. At 89, the visionary continues to thrive and influence generations of progressive artists despite the unwarranted contempt that just won't fade by Sean Bradley. I I really, really disagree with this, this notion. Because here's the thing. Here's I, I just want to really just sort of say it. I'm not going to. We're not going to sit here and dive deep into this article. I just want to say that like Yoko Ono is not the sole reason that the Beatles broke up, but she is absolutely, she was a factor. She was absolutely a factor. And you can't, you, you can't, um, you, you can't like, uh, what you want to call it? You can't blame her entirely, but she, she was the catalyst for John. She was like, uh, she was a pawn. She was actually kind of a pawn in that way. She was manipulative. She was definitely, uh, she definitely was a climber and she definitely uh, uh, had set her sights on, you know, attaching herself to the Beatles and their fame. But John Lennon, you know, might be just as much to blame here in the sense that John Lennon is using Yoko as that wedge to wedge himself between the Beatles. And Yoko doesn't mind at all. Yoko is so down with being that wedge. So is Yoko partially responsible for breaking the deals? Absolutely. 
the other big fa- huge factor of the business dealings with Alan Klein. We've talked talked about this in all the Beatles shows that we've done. But we're getting we're getting some revisionist history, and it does not help that the that let it the get back documentary cuts out all of Yoko Ono's sort of manipulative behavior, which is definitely present. See, first line right here. What uh, Whatever else Peter Jackson's Beatles doc get back accomplishes over the course of its exhaustive eight hours, it, def- it definitively lays to rest the persistent myth that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. Hey, Sean, do your diligence as a reporter. That is the dumbest thing you are taking the the a politically like a uh, like this thing that's very clearly mired in politics you're taking it at face value yes i am getting flustered because i just can't like where is your diligence dude all you do you know all of the material all of the material that get back comes from the all the the hundreds of hours of material it's all available on the internet you can hear if you go there are plenty of beatles channels that do super detailed commentary Everything that involved Yoko Ono was cut out of that documentary. 150%. She, you you don't see an ounce. It's, it's scrubbed. It's completely scrubbed. And obviously she's one quarter of the people who need to sign off on that documentary. So of course it's going to look favorable to her, but the idea that it definitively lays to rest the persistent myth that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles is literally the dumbest thing. I mean, Peter Jackson very like subversively and coyly tries to inject that stuff whenever he can into the narrative. And he does it very, very well. Like, you know, when they're, you hear Paul literally saying, what are they literally going to be talking about how Yoko sat on an amp and it broke up the Beatles 50 years later. There's so much more. There's so much more to let uh, get back is just the iceberg. It's an eight hour iceberg that sits above the surface of a much, much larger iceberg. So I just, yeah, I just had to, you know, sort of, that, that's my rebuttal. Dagger agrees. Dagger agrees. Yoko totally broke up the Beatles. She ate George Harrison's cookie and he walked out. <laughs> Dagger, exactly, exactly. Um, <clears throat> Zach says, I read the person that one bass guitar got back with Jerry and Jerry sent the person some extra... Yeah, that yeah, we literally just read that, Zach. We just read that. Yep, Jerry hooked them up. Yeah, he did, man. He did. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, Jerry. Pretty cool. Um, on social media, memes treat her music as a torturous joke. I mean, it it kind of is. YouTube videos pair her uh, keening abstract vocalizations with pop tunes. To showcase her supposed awfulness, this is such a this is such hip this is hipster garbage. I'm sorry, I can't even I can't even I, I really can't even co-sign on this. I'm not gonna I'm not saying that Yoko Ono uh, wasn't a musician or did not contribute like to the musical landscape, but you were giving that this article is just this is revisionist man. This is all re- revisionist nonsense. What's overlooked by what's overlooked by many eager to dismiss her as a screeching banshee in the diversity of Ono's catalog from the lo-fi experiments of her trio of late sixties albums with Lennon. I mean, don't treat the friggin' that avant-garde garbage as anything more than just funny little experimental musings, man. Come on. 
come on from the lo-fi experiments of her trio of late 60s on with London. More interesting, perhaps, is documented than music. She came into her own with 1970s plastic Ono band, a companion piece to Lennon's identically named release that featured visceral, throttling grooves like Why, alongside the harrowing, hypnotic Greenfield morning, I pushed an empty baby carriage all over the city. I mean, it's bullshit, man. I'm sorry. I am sorry. I can't. I, I can't co-sign this. I can't. Ono's early releases were contemporaneous with the groundbreaking punk punk progenitor progenitors progenitors. I can't pronounce that word. The Stooges and the Velvet Underground do not put the Stooges and the Velvet Underground's avant-garde sensibilities in the same category as Yoko Ono's. Do they overlap in that Venn diagram? Yes, to an extent, but like, come on, it's so it's so different, man. Come on, come the come the freak on. Angus says, my brother-in-law bought a John Lennon lithograph. She was supposed to meet him and the, all the other buyers. Instead, she went down the escalator and waved and exited the venue. That's cool. Nice. So she almost met John Lennon. Um, Yeah, this is not. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Plastic Ono Band. By the way, John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band might be the single best might be the single best um <laughs> might be the single best solo Beatles album John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band but Yoko Ono's Plastic Ono Band come on come on what are we what are we Plastic Ono Band seems like a prototype for later bands like Sonic Youth and Yola Tango who pair earnest rock songwriting with sculptural feedback and and fractitious noise the combination uh, reached its pinnacle for Ono on her 1971 double album masterpiece, Fly. Who is this? Who is this? This goober, man. I got to know. Sean Brady, uh, Brady. Wow. Oh, this is a title article. Big star. In the, I'm just looking at the other things that they've written about. Sean, you fool. You are such a fool. I wouldn't click on any one of these articles so far. Oh, he did an interview with Paul Stanley. I guess I would. I would read that. You can't see what. Oh, yeah, you can. You can see the thing that the thing that I'm looking at here. I mean, this is really this is something else. Okay, I would read this too. 1970, the death of flower power and the birth of hard rock. That actually would be pretty interesting. I'm not going to read it right now. Maybe we'll save it, actually. That looks pretty interesting. Okay, on to the next thing. We're just moving, guys, we're just moving along. We're going to take a sponsored break. Did you know that the Fromish Channel is powered by riotstickers.com? They are the geniuses who printed up this beautiful Fromish banner that you see behind you. It's a lot bigger than it looks. It, it's just, it's at an angle. Uh, riotstickers.com and myself are running a special promotion only available on this channel. If you click on the link in the description below, you can get uh, 50% off Riot stickers, uh, a special uh, 50 three-inch by three-inch stickers. That's a lot of real estate uh, for your images. Uh, the stickers stick great. They don't peel, unlike leading competitors, that sort of thing. Um, they are... Uh, 
They're great, man. They're great. Sharpie is great. Friggin', we love them. We love them here. And like I said, we're running the promotion. Use the promo code from us. You're going to get 50% off. Uh, $29.50. It's normally $59. It's a value that you can't even comprehend. Description down below in the comments. And we're just going to play our little video here. Little 60-second interlude before we return to our scheduled programming on Night From Us number one. And welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We're moving right along here. Right along here. Um, up next, here's an interesting little thing from, you know, we cover a lot of beefs on the show. I love doing the beef episodes. Those are fun. I don't have, um, actually, there are a couple of beefs, but we're not going to, we're just going to focus on this little thing. I remember reading about this uh, a while back. Um, there was a movie called Fury, the World War II film, and we we all heard about how Brad Pitt was really angry with Shia LaBeouf because he was firing like a gun that was really, really loud. He was firing blanks and it like damaged Brad Pitt's ears and he was super mad. But um this uh this is a new piece that that ha- has recently come to light. I never watched the film. Um, but you know, Shia LaBeouf is LaBeouf LaBeouf, he's like uh he's a weird dude, like He's he's a really good screenwriter, um, but he's also like he's a he's apparently he's a real like a hole, just a real, real a hole, really difficult, tortured genius actor type kind of guy. He's great in um, Lars von Trier's uh, Nymphomaniac volumes one and two. He's great in that. Um, so anyway, this is what happened on the set of Fury. This is from IndieWire, Samantha Berg Burgesson. Tells us that LaBeouf accent allegedly got mad after Eastwood followed the script and spat on a tank during production. Again, World War II, and they have tanks and whatnot. A misunderstanding on the set is nothing to get furious about. Scott Eastwood, that's the 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 son of Clint Eastwood, writer director Clint Eastwood, actor writer director Clint Eastwood, recalled that while filming uh, David Ayer's. 2014 World War II uh, movie, Fury, sorry, I have a lot of burps tonight. He butted heads with co-star Shia LaBeouf and Brad Pitt had to defuse the situation. So Brad Pitt stepped in between Eastwood and LaBeouf. It all started after Eastwood spat on the tank in which the trio were riding. While the actor was scripted, uh, LaBeouf didn't realize that Eastwood's character was meant to do that. Uh, he got mad at me, and it turned into a vi- volatile moment 
that Brad Pitt ultimately got in the middle of. Eastwood told Insider, you got to put things in perspective. This is make-believe. It's fun, and at times it's serious, and you're doing emotional work, and you give people space to do that in. But everything has its parameters. And I think the most famous example of this is, have you guys ever heard Christian Bale melt down during uh, Terminator 4, Terminator Salvation? Absolutely lost his mind. So I think the gaffer or the DP was like fixing a light in the background of a shot. I'm not sure if they were rolling at the time or if he was rehearsing, but uh, he had a hot mic on. A hot mic is when you, you know, you have like a lav or something like, you know, you have boom mics, but then you also have like a lav mic too, just like as a backup if you're doing, doing sound. And, you know, you can always like, like ADR lines later, but you still need like scratch audio, you need reference audio and stuff. There's a lot of reasons why you have them. And um, uh, he his mic was hot, which means it was recording. It was live. And it captured this five-minute tirade of, of Christian Bale having a meltdown. And uh, and he did a, I don't know, he, he just, people did like techno remixes and stuff of it. Um, I mean, stuff happens, man. I mean, and, and you know, a lot of people, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because, yeah, like people get, People become super volatile when they're acting like they're in these like mind spaces. It's like a, it's real, it's emotional. Acting is emotional labor, man. It's serious emotional labor. And like you get into a headspace and then all of a sudden, you know, something doesn't. I mean, there's another article that's floating around right now. I didn't I didn't read it because I want to read the book about Charlize Theron and um, Tom Tom Hardy during the making of Fury Road. Like they they really butted heads and it got really scary after a while. I think she claims that she needed protection on set, which sounds really, really crazy. Um, and they've since sort of admitted to being friends, even though they don't really get along very well. I don't know who knows, man, who knows, but this is kind of interesting. Um, the suicide squad star can, const- oh, I shouldn't have said that. I never think, your pro uh, I never think your process as an actor should ever hinder how people are treated on set. Yeah, totally true as well. Like e- ju- everything I just said does not justify you then acting like a, a, an a-hole and treating people like garbage. Like you shouldn't treat people on garbage just because you're doing emotional labor. We all do emotional labors like waiters and, you know, retail people and, you know, baristas, they do emotional labor every single day. It does not give them license to treat people like garbage and it shouldn't give actors the license to treat anybody like garbage either. Um, It should always enhance the production and not take away and put people in a situation where it's crappy, uh, where it's a crappy work environment or you're rude or people have to be in an uncomfortable situation. LaBeouf was uh, allegedly let go from Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry, Worry Darling production with Booksmart director citing her no a-hole policy for the firing. Uh, actress FKA Twigs filed a lawsuit against LaBeouf for alleged, you know, uh, battery of the, of the SEX kind and abuse. Um, Pitt previously confirmed LaBeouf's encounter with Eastwood in a 2014 British GQ cover story. We were driving down the road and I'm in the turret and Shia's in the other turret and Scott is on the back spitting, chewing tobacco, Pitt said. And I'm starting to get pissed off. I'm starting to get hot because this is our home. He's disrespecting our home, you know. That's interesting. Uh, So I said in the scene with the cameras rolling, you're going to clean that shit up. 
Shia clocks it. And you have to understand we've been through sev severe boot camp already. We've been, we've been through a lot in this tank. Uh, Shia saw it and felt the same and he's disrespecting our home. So Shia had the same reaction I did and started having some words. Uh, Pitt said he had to get in to calm tensions between Eastwood. So I guess Pitt was also upset about it, but apparently it was supposed to be part of the script. The funny thing is when we got home at the end of the day and read the script, it said Scotty's character is chewing tobacco and spitting it on the back of the tank. He was just doing as instructed in the script. So at the end of the day, everybody's an a-hole in the story, <laughs> except for Scott Eastwood. Um, that wasn't very fulfilling. I don't know why. I, I was expecting it to be better than it was. Um, let's let's break. What else we got here? Okay, this one, this one might be a, a little bit of um, a, a little bit controversial. A little bit controversial. Um, we got a comment from Zach here. He says, wouldn't it be cool if sponsors that do Riot Fest would promote your show as the sponsor with Riot stickers? And then it would be super cool of you to raffle off two tickets for the 40 year walk. I would. Oh, my God. That's actually like that is actually super genius, man. Like if if I had a bigger channel, like if this channel was big, bigger, let's say I had like 100,000 subscribers. I really think I could pull something like that. But I'm, we're just just a tiny little operation here, man. Um, but I really like where your thinking is at, Zach, the Bone Man. You you um you got your head in the right place. Uh, Biz says she can't stand any movie that she's seen Shia in. Uh, the Snooch says, "Are you pumped to have Romeo's distress screen with the Good Exorcist?" Hell yeah, I am. That's right. So um, this Saturday. In Winchester, uh, Winchester, Virginia, I am traveling down there to the Alamo Draft House. I will be doing a Q&A and appearing with my movie, Romeo's Distress, feature-length film um, that I made a few years back. Before I was a YouTuber, I was a filmmaker. And, um, it, it, you know, I'll tell you something. I, you know, I, I'm a patron of the Alamo Draft House. I never, ever thought in a million freaking years that my movie would play at an Alamo draft house. It's like such a honor to me. It's a, it, it's a real, um, it's a validation of the work, man. It's a validation of the work and it feels really good. And um, I, just a, a toast. And it's screening with two great films. The good, uh, the good exorcist, Josh, I, you know, I've done Josh's podcast, but we've never met in real life. So we're going to meet. And, um, and also uh, Mike Lombardo's film. And uh, my friend Bob Rose, his his fil his short's going to be playing before mine. Um, a lot of a lot of the, the the lineup is stacked, and I apologize for everybody who I'm not listening. Uh, Rakefet, she's having her her short boo is playing. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if you can attend, you should definitely come check it out. It's one night, uh, one day, Saturday, this Saturday at the Alamo Draft House. I'm really thirsty. I ate a torta, uh, carnitas torta, and um, it was very salty. So it was good, but it was salty, and I need for, – for those of you who can't make it out, you can watch Romeo's Distress uncut in its entirety on this channel. You can watch it. It's there. Go look for the uncut version. Um, when you watch –
Well, that was bizarre. Hi. Okay, I'm back, I guess. Super weird. Super weird. Okay. Now, we have talked a many a time. Hold on. I think I have to boot myself here. Uh-oh. hope this doesn't mess me up. We'll see what happens. I don't know what I don't know what's going on. Is the camera still frozen? Yeah, I'm still frozen, I guess. Come on. No. All right, we're back. We're back. Sorry about that, everybody. No, it's it was me, guys. It was me. I'm sorry about that. I uh, I don't even know. I don't know where I left off. I'll just I'm just going to keep rolling with the show though. All right, so this is a Spotify article. We talk about Spotify a lot on the on the show. Spotify is kind of controversial in the sense with all the stuff that's going on with Joe, Joe Rogan and that. And I just want to say I I have no, I do not want to talk about that. Okay, I do not want to talk about that. I don't want to. Oh, what's up, Bob Rose is here. Sorry, I'm a little out of sync. Um, we were just talking about your film, Bob. We were talking about uh, that your film was playing before my film. Super stoked about that. Um, okay, so we're talking about Spotify here. But like I said, we're not talking about Joe Rogan. We're not talking about all that. What what I want to talk about is a comment that uh, made by Disturbs Dave Draymond. Uh, Streaming music services like Spotify saved music. Really, really interesting uh, uh, sort of stuff that he talked about. I skimmed this. I haven't read the whole thing yet. So I don't know if I entirely uh, agree with what he is going to say. Now, I, I want to put a disclaimer out here before I, 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 we, we talk about this more. I just want to note that Spotify does not pay its artists enough, and it can, and it should. And I wish that all musicians would unite and do a massive, massive boycott of Spotify so that, or unionize or do something in a, in a way that that they could make more money than they are right now. I just want to put that out there. I just want to put that out there. With that said, I think that at the same time, artists um, they they sort of don't really. Again, this is a this is a this is a general statement. I should not be making. I'll say that I've seen some artists. Like, I feel like some artists don't understand what Spotify is good for or what it should be used for in that, like, you know, it's not something that I think I I think if you stop thinking about it as something that's meant to be generating revenue, whether you're getting ripped off or not, you have to look at it within the larger conversation of what happened with Napster and the record companies and what's continuing to happen with the record companies, because at the end of the day. There are many artists who aren't receiving the money that they maybe should be, not because necessarily of Spotify, and that's not me defending Spotify. It's just the reality of the situation is that the, the Spotify is paying the wrong people. Spotify is paying money to the record labels. The record labels are getting a piece of the streaming action when it should be the artists. Maybe those artists' royalties would be bigger They'd be getting more if the if the record companies weren't dipping their toe in the park pockets. Super condensed breakdown of what happened for those of you who might have forgotten. In the 90s, we saw such excessive greed from record store companies 
I mean, it just got the, the, the labels. It just got out of hand. Um, you were, it, you were buying, people were buying CDs for 1899 or, you know, whatever, 14, 15 bucks, $17 for an album. It, it was just getting, it was getting fucking ridiculous, man. It was just getting ridiculous. Hi, Victor. Victor, just Victor. I don't know if you tipped me just now or what that notification was, or if you subscribe, but whatever it was, I just want to say live long and prosper. Victor V is for Victor. And um, thank you for your support. Truly. Um, the, 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 the record labels were just, I mean, they were just so gross with their greed. They're charging consumers an arm and a leg for a product. And at the same time, they're royally for decades, for decades, they were screwing over. The old system was not good. There was not a good system. You know, they, the, you know what you were getting, you were getting connections and you were getting validation and you were getting, um, you know, uh, bona fide, I guess would be the best way by being on a record label. Oh my God. My eye ah. being on a record label was almost like a stamp of approval, like for something trying to think of like a good example here being on a record label back in the day like if you're on i don't know god what's a record label you're on universal bmg universal or whatever i don't know it's a it's a it's a sign of it's a sign of like you know you're verified it's like verif it's like that little blue check that sort of thing that there's some sort of quality to what you're putting out or that like you are professional or real. I'm, you know what? I'm doing a terrible job. This, I do not have the language that I wish I had on the tip of my tongue to describe what it is. I'm trying to say to you right now. But the point is, is that these, and these record labels were acting with impunity. They were screwing over so many people. It was just, they were screwing over artists left and right. Look at what happened to meatloaf. Meatloaf never like made a dime from bad out of hell, or, you know, he might've made a little bit, but he didn't make what he could have made because of record labels. Um, and then what happened was technology made it possible that people could steal music for free. And they did because they were sick and tired of paying 1899 for a CD. You know what I mean? Like around the year 2000, 2001, it was just, it was disgusting. It was literally disgusting. You know, there were singles or there were, you know, album exclusive singles because, you know, singles kind of went the wayside, you know, physical singles, like, you know, they, they weren't popular in the nineties. Like they slowly started to dwindle. And what I mean is buying physical singles, you would buy the full album in the later half of the nineties. You're not just buying the single, you're buying the whole album and the whole album cost you 1899 or whatever, you know, 1699 or 1799. I mean, you're just, you're paying so much money for, you know, music when I don't know, it, it just wasn't affordable to, it wasn't very affordable. And at the same time, it was the only way to listen to music was to listen to it on a CD. So what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Geffen's a great example. Geffen's one of those labels roadrunner. Um, so then Spotify comes. So then Napster comes along and just destroys everything, literally destroys everything, makes music free, um, screws over musicians in a whole new way. But, and that's not to say that it's not, this doesn't justify Napster or whatever, but it's like, it was a visceral revolutionary reaction 
to the old system that was equally screwing the musicians the way that the new system was. You know what I'm saying? Um, except with the internet gave rise to the ability of autonomy for musicians in a way that they'd never had before. And we talk about this all the time. You know, you can do your own label literally on your own website on the internet. Now you don't need a middleman anymore. You don't, you really don't, you know? And so the disturbed guy, this is what he had to say about Spotify. Let's see if we, let's see, let's see if we agree with what he's saying. Not saying that I agree. And I'm not saying, like I said, I think artists, all artists should be paid. I'm, I, I consider myself to be a, a purveyor of the arts and I think I deserve to be paid as well. You know, we all deserve to be paid if we're creating stuff and putting it out there in some way, shape or form. You know, I, I, I think. Well, I mean, I guess it has to be good, and I guess people have to have want a demand. If it's good and pe- and there's a demand for it, I should say, you know, there people should be paid. People should be compensated for their work. How about this? People should be compensated for their work. If their work is of value and there are transactional, monetary transactions being done with it. That, how about that? Is that a good place to leave? Okay, okay, good, good. Let's let's leave it there. Bob wants to be paid too. Bob, we're, we're, we both we both want to be paid, man. We both want it to happen. We can get paid in corn. We can get paid in potato gravy. Um, so much stuff. All right, all right, all right, all right. Enough, enough dilly dallying. The 48-year-old singer shared his opinion after a video compilation surfaced of, oh God, of podcaster Joe Rogan. All right, let's fast forward this. I don't want to talk about this part. I really don't. It's too controversial. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to talk about it. We all know what happened with Rogan and Neil Young and Spotify. And um, meanwhile, some musicians have taken the opportunity to open up larger conversations about Spotify's payout structures, artist rights, and the streaming economy at large. Draymond addressed Spotify's payment rate to artists in a series of tweets on Wednesday. This is on February 9th, 9th. He wrote, All those attacking Spotify, young and old, would do well to remember a couple little things called music piracy and BitTorrent sites. So here's the here's the interesting here is here's the interesting part of this. Okay, Um, Zach, Zach, um, lobby to riot stickers, not riot stickers to riot fest. We're going to get riot riot fest. We're going to get. My sponsor here, Riot Stickers, and myself, we're going to do this. We're going to make it happen. I'm, I'm all about it. And there's nothing like that sweet, sweet cob money, man. That friggin' sweet, delicious, succulent corn cob money. That's what we need. Okay, in any case, I, I have a feeling this is going to be like a real, this is going to be really something good. Um, He says... All those attacking Spotify, young and old, would do well to remember a couple little things called music piracy and BitTorrent sites. Before streaming took hold, both artists and the very music industry itself was on the verge of collapse. Why? Because the heads of major labels at the time refused to see the future when a young Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, the guys behind a little startup called Napster, approached them with a new way to reach their consumers at an unprecedented unprecedented levels, and they shot them down. So instead, Fanning and Parker let Napster do its thing for free. I did not know this. So I guess I guess even before Napster was free for all on the internet, that 
they had tried shopping it around to labels and the labels told them to go take a hike. Piracy and BitTorrent sites soon followed along with the new perception that music should be free. Artists suffered, record labels suffered, and the industry itself nearly collapsed. It took streaming to bring it back to life. Streaming made the labels profitable again, made catalog artists regain a royalty stream and made piracy obsolete. Let's let's break that down, that part down, because this is very interesting. Number one, yes, in, at the dawn of the Napster age, that was the motto. Music should be free. And a lot of people, a lot of just, you know, uh, John and Joan, you know, lunch pails out there thought, <laughs> thought, thought, agreed and thought that music should just be free. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm not saying that I'm not saying anything. All I'm saying is I'm saying it's wrong. You should not steal music. You should not illegally download anything like that is wrong. That is stealing from artists, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not the reality. That's the reality. Whether they liked it or not, their music was now free. How are they now going to make money? And streaming, as it turns out, is the only way to stop piracy. It's true. And you see that piracy, you know, I don't know the data off the top of my head, and I would be lying to you if I did. But I bet if you were to Google the data, I feel like a lot of that, I'll tell you, you know what, I'll relate it. You know what, here's a great relate. I'll relate it to, to, to my habits with streaming on Netflix and stuff. So I used to be a, a physical collector of media. And, you know, I used to work at Sam Goody and FYE, and I used to you know, buy, buy all sorts of releases. And if you were to, if I were to turn the camera over that way, you'd see a whole wall full of discs. Um, you know, I still buy the, the occasional Blu-ray, but I've really stopped. And the reason why is because everything is streaming now and the convenience of being able to go on Hulu or Netflix or Tubi or anything, all of it is at my fingertips. And there's so much of it to watch that I, it's I've it's I'm sad to say that I've lost the desire to buy physical media. I just don't if I'm paying for a subscription service, I just don't see any reason to own the same movie. They're not even putting special features on these movies anymore unless you get like boutique labels, the only ones that are still doing special features. So I'll still buy boutique label stuff that comes out Scream Factory, Arrow Video, that sort of thing. But I'm done picking up, you know, going to Best Buy and picking up the latest release of, you know, whatever. I just I don't see any purpose to it anymore. I just don't. And if the movie disappears off of streaming, then I'll then and I want to watch it. Then I will order it on Blu-ray on Amazon and just nip it in the bud. You know what I mean? But it but but my point being is that my desire to like, you know, need to own a copy, whether it is a. You know, it's in my case, I'm talking about a physical copy of a disc of a movie that I legally purchase at a store or whatever. But in the case of piracy, you're talking about people instead of like, why do I need to like have this backed up when I can just stream it whenever I want for free? I could stream the entire discography of this band for free and they are legally getting paid, even though they're getting paid way too little. You know what I mean? So so streaming did destroy piracy and piracy was destroying everything it was destroying the little guys and the big guys it was a rampant problem and we don't talk about piracy today the way we used to talk about piracy it just doesn't exist anymore man the streaming like streaming changed that you know for the better i think 
in that way. And it's the same, you know, I don't subscribe to libertarian politics at all, but like the, it is, a, I feel like this is a very sort of like libertarian kind of mentality of like, it, you know, libert, the, like pragmatism, I guess is what I mean. Like, for instance, liber, libertarians believe in, and I just want to reiterate, I am not, not a libertarian, um, but libertarians believe that drugs should be completely legal. And this is the one area where I guess I do agree with libertarians. I think all drugs should be legal. I do. I think they should be regulated by the government. And I think that, you know, if you want to, you know, shoot heroin, that you should be able to do it safely and legally um, without having to worry about overdosing and dying because some street dealer stepped on it with fentanyl, you know, and you ended up cooking up a hot shot because it's because it's not regulated. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, and then all of a sudden it's like, what, where are cartels going to be making their money on the black market if all the drugs are legal? You know what I mean? Like, so I feel like, I, I feel like there is pragmatism in sort of th- going completely against the grain. And I feel like, I, I feel like that's the deal with Spotify. You know what I mean? I feel like that's the deal with Spotify. Like it's just the streaming allows. And then the other thing too is Spotify is the equivalent of Amazon. We've talked about this before. Spotify is the equivalent of Amazon Prime for filmmakers like me. We we all had our movies on Amazon Prime and we were getting just screwed by Amazon. They, you know, they were just paying us nothing. It, it, at the very end, it was like a penny for every hour watched. A penny. I make more money on YouTube than I ever did on Amazon Prime. You know what I'm saying? So what's interesting is that like, you know, what's interesting is that by putting my stuff out for free and allowing it to be monetized with ads, I am now connected. I mean, YouTube is the one of the biggest platforms ever and it's completely free. It's like open source almost in a way. You know what I mean? It's just like free for everybody. Anybody can click on my video and watch it. And when they hit an ad, I get paid. You know what I mean? Do I get paid enough? No, I could be getting paid a lot more. Do, should should musicians get paid more? Yes, absolutely. I think the I think the disturbed guy is totally on the ball so far with his statement with what he is saying. Uh, Bob Rose says here. I usually say I usually say this new streaming world. I usually say in this new streaming world, the only Blu-rays I need to own are the ones I wouldn't mind being buried with. I I think that is a lovely sentiment that should be needle pointed and framed. I would totally get that framed above my mantle place. I I completely agree. Biz says. Yeah, but once a service goes down, all your stuff is gone, and that's a pretty big negative. Huge negative. Huge, huge, huge negative. I do agree. I do have a library of movies over there. Like uh, Everything that I'd want to be buried with is over there. Um, I do think that is a problem. It's. I'm not saying it's a perfect solution, but it definitely has curbed piracy, which was absolutely like decimating everything. It's piracy is still a problem, but it's not the problem that it was because of the, the easy availability and the value that people get for paying a subscription fee. You pay five 99 for Hulu and you just get everything, you know, um, Joe, Joe, we're doing a, a brand new show format, buddy. Um, 
This is a brand new show. Welcome to Night From Us. Just a talk show where we just talk. We're just talking about a variety of things. Crazy White Boy says that the thing about drugs has been working, works in Portugal, uh, been years now. Did not know that. I did not know that. Um, uh, the Snooch says they decriminalized almost all drugs here in Portland. And so what's it like there in Portland, uh, the Snooch? Like, explain to me, like, what have ha, have you seen or it, has Portland seen uh, a drastic uh, decrease in you know, all the stuff that all the the stuff that's connected with um, or, you know, great example. Are, 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 is there a lot of I don't know. I don't know how to qualify this. Are there a lot of fentanyl deaths there that maybe or are there less fentanyl deaths than there used to be? You know, I don't know. Um, I'd be curious to know, um, depending on the weight, it's like a parking ticket and, or you can take a class. I see. That's what I think it is. Giving people uh, clean, safe you know, pipes and needles to, to use with, you know, um, you're not going to stop people from doing these things. You're not going to stop them. They're it, people are going to do them. There's no point in making them illegal. All that does is that just creates more crime. And it's the same thing with the streaming. It's like, if you have streaming ad supported streaming, like what Spotify does, people just aren't going to be on torrents the way that they used to be. Because once music became free, everybody just decided that I deserve free music and I'm going to download free music. Spotify has created a place where you can not only discover a new band, and I mean, their algorithm is amazing for that. And I've discovered plenty of new music, but you it'll tell you when the band's coming to town. And if you're like a, a responsible, passionate lover of music, you will, me, every time I go to a show, I always buy the vinyl. I buy a vinyl and I buy a t-shirt if I have enough money, if it's affordable for me. I always buy one or the other. Always support the band on the road. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. Biz says, just, just because a drug is legal doesn't mean it won't have a nasty side effects or you won't get addicted. Just playing the devil's advocate is all I'm not trying to argue. Well, I mean, no, I don't think I don't think you're playing the devil's advocate at all. And you're absolutely right. But like we've gotten to a place in, in our society. The war on drugs didn't work. We tried it. We tried to prevent. We we literally tried to prevent all of this. And all we did was we I mean, crime, you know, drug drug crime has just you know exploded as a result. And things have become unsafe for people that are going to be doing this, whether we try to stop them or not. And fentanyl deaths have just been out of control. Everything has fentanyl. You know, there used to be this thing, you know, back in the day, oh, don't smoke the, the weed you're smoking might be laced with a hot, harder substance. So you never know what you're going to get when you're smoking. And that was kind of like a, that was kind of like a candy apple. That was kind of like a razor blade in the candy apple sort of thing. But today, you legitimately could be smoking weed laced with fentanyl and just die. I mean, that stuff does happen. I'm not saying it happens often. I'm saying it, it is more of a reality today than it used to be. Um, Zach says, oh, crap, stupid. Zach says, you touched base on that, Jeff, with the band Wolfface in the interview we did with him, uh, batting around, talking about Spotify. Thank you, Zach. Right? Wow, that was a that was a long time ago. That that wolf. That's a great interview. Check out that. Uh, that's one of our episodes of Pizza Punk. Um, yeah, we've we've talked about it several times on the show. Um, 
The snooch says a shitload of rampant drug addicts and homelessness. Oh, okay. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I, I was expecting the snooch to be like, oh, it's become a utopia where, where everything's good. Uh, <laughs> this is not what I was expecting. Hearing. Crime and murders went up a lot and more fentanyl deaths. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Dagger is a DJ. He says he only listens to vinyl. Dagger is a DJ, though, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if you're a DJ, of course you're going to listen to vinyl. DJ Dagger Love. Um, It is what it is. Jail population is down, so it probably does save taxes instead of locking someone up with an addiction. That's that's the snooch. I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure the numbers from a big picture perspective, probably, you know, must look better in some way, shape or form. Um, Angus says for music, I'm more into physical media. I like something to touch. I find that more information is included with physical media. Me too, dude. I mean, of course I am as well. And I, I love, I, I love buying vinyl and, you know, I just bought the, I've got a Christian death, um, only theater of pain. I just just purchased that uh, from their their band camp. I didn't get the, the there's a one hundred and forty dollar version, which I was like, ah, I cannot afford that. But they did have the twenty dollar version. And I was I thought maybe that it was runoff and that it wasn't going to come with a sleeve. But Frontier Records confirmed that it did come with a sleeve. So I purchased that. I would not have gotten it if it was just the vinyl without a sleeve. No way. Why? Because I want the art. Yes, we, we lose that relationship. Listening to music has changed. It's not the, what it used to be. It used to be, you know, especially as Dagger is talking about listening to vinyl. I mean, there's a, there's a whole relationship to listening to vinyl. It's a ritual. You put the record on, you watch the record spin, you hear the, the, the pops and the hisses, you look at the album art. You know, if it's like the 70s and you're smoking some, you know, uh, swag, you know, you're breaking up your seeds and stems on the album cover and, you know, <laughs> rolling some J's, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, the snooch says, I buy vinyls of the bands I dig. That's good. That's good. You know, it, that's the way, you know, invest in the economy, you know, invest in the economy and the bands will keep making stuff. If you keep buying from them, if you really love a band and you really love what they're putting out, make sure you purchase it. You know, um, biz says, I agree with you, Angus. I prefer to own what I buy. I'm coming at this from a books and video game perspective. Mostly Zach says, um, CDs and the internet brought down Tower Records. I watched a huge documentary on Tower Records the other day. Yeah, very sad. I miss, I really miss my Tower Records uh, to death. Um, Joe says, not with weed, fentanyl. No one gives, no one's giving away free drugs. I'm not saying people are giving away, like, I'm not saying people are giving away, like, blunts, like, dipped in fentanyl. I'm just saying that like the, the the possibility of getting weed with fentanyl in it is is like more, much more of a reality than it was 25 years ago getting your weed laced with I don't know dipped in PCP like off the street like no one's just going to be selling you weed laced with PCP uh I just feel like I, I feel like it's more it's more uh prevalent like it's like it's it's real it's really, really will. Um, 
No, the, that's what I'm saying. The war on drugs didn't work. So what does work? You know, and obviously that's a, too big of a question. I don't have the answers. That's too big of a question for me to answer. But, um, you know, you know what I'm saying. Uh, crazy white boy says Fent. Fent has been uh, found in the weed here in Baltimore. So there you go. That's what I'm saying. Imagine that. Imagine. And everybody smokes weed. Smoking weed is as normal as drinking a glass of water these days, right? So it's like, imagine, like, never experiencing fentanyl before and having it introduced into your system. And again, I don't know. I, I From my understanding, I've never done fentanyl. It's my understanding that fentanyl just takes a very small amount to, to really hurt you, maybe even kill you. And so the, to, to imagine that someone is, you know, just trying to make, trying to, you know, sell their, their grams, you know, at an increased price point and, you know, putting fentanyl on it to do so is scary. And I feel like it's realer than it used to be. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't want to contend that I'm an expert and that ultimately I don't know. I'm not in that world at all. Um, but from the periphery of what I have heard and sort of witnessed secondhand from other people who've told me that that is the reality. Um, love CDs and love looking at the artwork photos, the lyrics, the little personal touches and the answers. I, you know, I mean, CDs will always have a special place in my heart because that's, you know, CDs and, and cassettes. I mean, that's how I consume media. And then I didn't start consuming vinyl until i was older but uh, you know ultimately for me it's it's vinyl joe joe continues to say not in weed um i do know that joe can you know probably probably un joe is familiar with these markets in some way shape or form and could speak to that so i mean listen i i don't know i honestly don't know um zach says Make it happen. Make it happen. Two of us, man. <laughs> Riot Fest. I'll be there anyway, probably hanging out with Jerry and his gang. But yeah, do it. Okay, Zach. That'd be great. We'll have Jerry there too. We'll get Jerry to we'll get Jerry. We'll we'll stick a riot sticker on the back of one of his bases. Angus says the best albums that I like, I buy in vinyl. Uh, the area, um, the area in my that my sorry, the area that my turntable is on is like an altar. Yeah, man, it, it just the way that that the movie theater is church, man. It's church. It's a it's a cathedral. Um, Dagger gets his weed from the doctors. No worries. Uh, that's I'm glad to hear that, Dagger. I'm glad. Just be safe. Be be safe. Um, yeah, Bob, you are also the the, Balt the Baltimore man. They call that that's why they call him Baltimore Bob Rose. You know that, right? I'll take all my skunk weed over weed laced with fent. Yikes. Yigs. Um nice, nice. Crazy white boy and uh crazy crazy white Baltimore and Baltimore Bob together in the house. All right, let's finish reading this and and, and wrap this up. We're 15 minutes over already. I, I, I wanted this to be an hour and ugh, every time. So anyway, um, so instead, so to get back to what he's saying, they, they tried to, Fanning and Parker tried to shop Spotify to the labels. I mean, Napster to the labels. The labels laughed them out of the room. So they let, 
They let Napster do its thing for free. Piracy and BitTorrent signs sued followed along with the new perception that music should be free. Artists suffered, record labels suffered, and the industry nearly collapsed. It took streaming to bring it back to life. Streaming made the labels profitable again, made the catalog artists regain a royalty stream, and made piracy obsolete. Streaming made legacy artists' catalogs like Neil Young and others tremendously valuable. It created the current environment where people stream their music and where musicians have the opportunity to sell their catalogs, which have regained value like Neil did. Now, we're leaving out the whole Neil Young, Joe Rogan part of this conversation. But, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, who do you think is taking a big chunk of that catalog money? The fucking labels. The labels are. So even though Disturbed Guy is, you know, you know, actually speaking some uh, really insightful things, he's also kind of sounds like a stooge a little bit to me. He sounds a little like a stooge as well. Uh, could or should Spotify have a better streaming royalty rate? He continued, I believe so. Come on, you believe so, you know so. But it doesn't take away from the fact that without streaming, there would be there would no longer be a music industry. That's true. And these artists who are complaining after they already sold their catalogs for gargantuan sums of money would be liquidating their assets and many would be struggling to survive. He makes a good point. Artists, you want to blame someone? Blame the heads of labels in the days prior to Napster who refused to adopt new technology in favor of of an antiquated retail system that had a higher profit margin. And that's the truth. They were just, they were so greedy. They were so greedy and they, they fell. They, Rome burned because they could not like allow themselves to not be blinded by greed, you know? Uh, blame your lawyers and your management for not negotiating a better royalty percentage in your retrospective record deals and blame yourselves for not paying attention to it because that's what happens. They, the contracts, the contracts are not in favor of the rec- recording artists and they're getting screwed now with, with streaming stuff. And, but then they blame Spotify. They don't blame the record labels, which is what I was saying at the beginning. So I guess I do agree with with this guy a lot more, but he still sounds like a stooge with what he was saying about like, should there be a better royalty rate? Of course there should be a better royalty rate. Come on. In summary, stop bitching, educate yourselves, and read your damn contracts. Streaming saved music, whether you wanted to accept it or not, it's the truth. It's hard to, when he when he breaks it down in that way, shape, or form, it's hard to argue, man. It's hard to argue with that logic. Um, Draymond, who's been a vocal supporter of Spotify for years, previously discussed the paltry payments, streaming services, payout to music rights uh, rights holders in a 2016 interview with the Josta Show podcast. At the time, he said, it's a simple thing. It comes down to very, very basic principles. The question is, for you, the individual recording contracts with whomever you're signed with, what is your digital royalty rate? If it's treated... Uh, if it's a treated at like a license, that's a 50-50 split. If it's treated like however they want to go ahead and put and and put it in your fine print, and they're going to give you 0.04% of what they're taking, well, then you can only br- blame yourself for not reading the contract, number one. He's got a good point there. He's got a good friggin' point there. Uh, number two, 
The biggest problem is that when the streaming services make deals with record labels, they make deals based on the entire catalog. So any label with a light that uh, so any label will license their entire entire catalog for say ten million dollars. So that's everybody. That's all the artists are getting lumped in together. It's not just the artist catalog; it's the labels catalog of artists. And I guess they don't have to make deal by deal basis. You know, if you know if you're if you have a contract, you could be like, hey. You know what? I if you're going to m- negotiate a licensing deal with a streaming service, then I want my I you can't package me as part of the catalog. What's up, Prone? I'm glad you're joining the stream. Sorry you missed it. Make sure you're subscribed with notifications turned on. Um So, uh yeah, and over the course of that year, it only generate Okay, so here's what he says. So any label will license their entire catalog for, let's say, $10 million. And over the course of the year, it only generates $5 million worth of spins. What happens to the other $5 million? They keep it. And it doesn't go to the artists. It doesn't go back to the streaming service. The record label pockets that. So once again, the record label has found a way as a middleman to, to make money. And you know, in the indie film world, we're all getting screwed in the same way. All of the, every distribution deal, if you don't get an upfront money guarantee for your movie, if you're like a little indie film, you are never going to see a dime. You're just not going to get paid. And what you have is a distribution deal that's nothing more than a shiny little feather or a shiny little badge on your, on your, on your jacket or a, a fluffy feather in your cap. And that's it. You're not making a living off of your art. Because you're not getting paid. The only time you're ever going to see money is that money guarantee. And if you're smart or if you have the ability to leverage, if you have the ability to negotiate, then that money guarantee will be at least the budget of the film that you just made so that you can at least recoup and reinvest in another film. I think that, I mean, that's the reality, you know, Um, but the record labels pocketing everything. So, all of that additional revenue that's pulled out unnecessarily because it's unjustified, right? Because it should be spin by spin, right? Instead, they say, hey, our catalog is going to be worth X in the next year. Give us this. They are forced to agree to it because that's the only way they can legally stream stuff on their platforms. And that's why if you just saw and if you just look at every single record label's bottom line, digital has become the bulk of their profit margin or leading towards profit. Warner Brothers just issued a statement this past quarter where it's the smallest loss they've seen in years, and they're going more and more into the positive because of what they are generating from digital and streaming services. So it's not that there isn't money to to be made. The issue is take a look at your record contracts. Make sure that you know what you're getting. And whether we like it or not, streaming isn't the big demon here. YouTube is the big demon. Ooh. There he go. He's dropping it now. He's just, he's, he's dropping it now. YouTube is the big demon. When you're being paid a sixth of what a streaming rate would be, and they're claiming that they're giving you all the bang for your buck because of the exposure, when you're the reason why people are going ahead and advertising, that's criminality. So he's saying right then and there that YouTube is even the worst, is even a worse defender. He goes, the industry is creeping, and unfortunately, it's a creep 
slowly, slowly, slowly turned uh, towards finally making this whole digital concept a little bit more transparent. They're going to have to one way or another eventually when they do just for accounting purposes, for data collecting purposes, because that's what 90% of these things end up being big data plays. They're going to end up having to become accountable. It's a good point. Uh, look at the Irving Azoffs of the world. The big heavy hitters of the world are pushing us forward in that direction. I applaud Nikki Six and the guys from 6AM for taking a strong stance on the YouTube issue. There are a number of people out there who are doing it right, but people are very quick to demonize streaming services. Spotify and entities like it were created to directly combat pri uh, piracy. Piracy is the issue, and that's what people are forgetting. It's almost like the media is putting so much hype onto these paltry royalty rates when in truth, at least there is a royalty rate. You get nothing from piracy, absolutely nothing. And you have an entire generation of fans that have been raised to think that it's okay when it still isn't. He is, man, he is so, he's on the money with that, dude. Draymond added, all of the streaming services are still, and Spotify in particular, 70% of their proceeds are going back towards license holders. License holders. That's the key. But so so even with all the money that they're not getting or whatever, the license, according to him, I don't know where the what the source is for this, but 70% of the proceeds go to the license holders, the bands. That's the key. But not only that, you can look at us, you can look at streaming as something that's supposed to replace. Physical sales. Physical sales are done. They're done. In two years, you won't see records in stores anymore, period. The CD will be as extinct as the VHS tape uh, just became very recently. It's just a matter of time. He's right. So the entire environment has shifted. The industry is finally adjusting towards it. It's a painful adjustment period. It's going to take time, but it'll get there. And whether we like it or not, the revenue stream will never be the same. So we need, and, and here's, okay, and here is the, the big, this is, this is super important to remember, okay? Um, he says the revenue stream will never be said. What's up, Count Zacula? How you doing, man? What's up? This guy is the friggin' phenomenal. Big fan of this guy's art. Big, big fan. You should check out, check out his channel, everybody. Count Zacula. He's got some cool stuff on there, truly. Truly, truly, truly like this guy a lot. Zach says, it'd be cool to see if the Misfits or Samhain do official uh, releases for Record Store Day. Yeah, that would be cool. I agree. Angus says, oh, shit. As far as I can remember, record labels have pretty much always screwed the... Yeah, they sure have. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely, Zach. Um, shit, what were we just talking about? Oh. So, so what's interesting is, you know, he's talking about like people are the problem with streaming royalty rates is that people are plugging them into physical royalty rates, like from phys selling physical music. And the thing is, and the thing is, is like you're making, you're not going to make the money the way that you made money when you were selling physical copies of records and stores. The, it's just a different business. It's not the same. And that's what I was going back to saying before we even started reading this thing, this notion that I think a lot of artists out there don't understand what Spotify exactly is for. It's not, 
a means of income per se. Although I will tell you, I have done some math. I have done some some Spotify math out of curiosity. And like, it's kind of amazing what some of these, even these very, very small artists, like very small artists out there that like are just, you know, not super high profile, but maybe have like uh, dedicated fan bases. I mean, they're making, they're making small minimum wage salaries yearly from their Spotify music. If, if I am understanding, if I'm calculating everything properly and from what we just read in this article, as far as I know, it's been pretty accurate, but it's just kind of amazing how, you know, you know, even there, like you're not, those guys aren't seeing that money. Um, so yeah, I just feel like, I feel like people just don't understand what Spotify is for, you know, and, you know, and he's saying on one hand, he's complaining, he's saying that, oh, you know, like exposure is bullshit. But at the same time, I feel like that's what Spotify literally is. It's an exposure tool. It is not, I mean, what, what you, I think what you would be hoping for is that, Spotify translates into secondary sales when you come to town and people come to see music, like to think of it more like radio than say, like you needed radio play back in the day, right? Like even when you were selling records, radio play sold records. And in this case, your bread and butter is live, live dates and, uh, uh, you know, the merch that you're selling on those live shows and, you know, your t-shirts and, and that sort of stuff, merch. And so, the, you know, I don't know what you call that. I don't know what the business term for that is technically, but like, that's like the secondary, you know, it's the secondary sale pool after, you know, Spotify, it, tra- it translates somehow. And you know what? I, I'm sitting here acting like I know what I'm talking about. I don't, I, I don't have the language. I, that's the truth. I don't have the language to fully express what I am thinking about in my head right now. Um, but it makes sense to me. It does. Um, Sharpie says, yeah, but think about this. I'm sure I've listened to more streaming. I'm sure I've listened to more streaming money of bands I love than the cost of the CD of the record. It's very possible, dude. I mean, think about it. If you're okay. So if it's point oh, let's do a little math. <clears throat> hey, kids, let's do a little math. We're going to do a little math. Hold on. No, let's do a little math. All right. Let's say that you listen to a song a hundred times on Spotify um, times point oh point oh oh four cents. Yeah, I don't know, Sharpie. So you're making that would means that means they're making forty cents if you've listened to the song a hundred times. That's not to say that you might not that you maybe you do listen to a song a hundred times, but come on. Do you listen to any one song on Spotify a hundred times in a year? I mean, I think I think it's more about just having the market so big. Like, for instance, there are there are people out there that are, you know, there are big, big time acts on Spotify that have a hundred million plays. So let's see here. A hundred million plays on Spotify. Hold on. 100 million times 0.004 and that's assuming that's assuming that um 
that's assuming that it's the same royalty rate. It might be a higher royalty rate than 0.004. And you're going to get four, $400,000. So I think it's, I, I think it's really, um, I don't know. I, I, it's just, it's just a really interesting conversation. Um, I wish somebody would do a documentary about this. It would be very interesting to see all the, the, the data. Dude, Wolfface is friggin' cool, bro. Love Wolfface. They're in that that movie Romeo's Distress that's playing at the Alamo Draft House that their their music is in in my movie. Joe says, Wow, Jeff, is that a custom vinyl banner you got back there? It looks great. Where can I get something like that with my brand or local? Yes, this comes from uh uh riotstickers.com. You did not hear our um, we did a, 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 a mid, we, we already did our, our riot stickers ad, but you know what? We did not talk enough about the banner. This is the banner. That is my new logo, the moon face logo. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, that's just the new logo for now. And, um, yeah, this banner was provided by, uh, Sharpie riot and it is a great banner and it is one of many things you can get at riotstickers.com. Um, Oh, Bob, you're so sweet. Bob says, wow, Romeo's Distress is a masterpiece. Everyone should go see. You can watch Romeo's Distress for free on this channel, guys. If you can't make it to the Alamo Draft House, which you should, to see my film and Bob's film. Bob, I, I don't even know how to describe. Bob, what is the title of your film, by the way? Because I was trying to, it's crypto something. It's crypto podcast 1799. I don't know what the exact title is. But um, Bob Bob makes things that are on another level as well. Um, sorry that yeah that is a fabric banner which I like. Well, we were talking, you know, biz. I I there's a lot of there's a lot of qualifiers to that forty cents. I was saying if you listen to a song one hundred times in a year on Spotify, it's going to be forty cents. That's from one person. So you're getting 40 cents from one person. If there's a billion people listening on Spotify, I don't know how many listeners Spotify has, but you have to think they're in the hundred millions, right? There's got to be a hundred million people listening to Spotify in the, in the minimum. That's one tenth of a billion. Yeah. One tenth of a billion. I've got to, I've got to imagine that there is money. Money is being made somewhere. Um, Mysteries of the Cryptid Sex Podcast number 1799. That is playing before Romeo's Distress. That's Bob Rose's film. Baltimore Bob. It's a found footage-ish comedy short, I guess. It's also on Bob's YouTube channel. Everybody should go and subscribe to Bob's YouTube channel. Bob Rose. Um, he's got the craziest, the craziest goods. He also has the Thunder Grunt Network. Check him out. Check them out. Bob, put your links in the in the in the in the chat so people can click on them. Let's wrap this up, guys, because this is again, we're, we're dilly dallying here. Um, uh, where was I? Status quo and try to the industry is finally adjusting towards it. It's painful. We talked about that. Talked about that. Try to make the royalty. Start maximizing your touring. All right. So here's what he's saying. So he's he's basically saying, like, look. Spotify is a tool. It is a tool. Start maximizing your merch. Start maximizing your touring. You need to view, by the way, he's saying this in 2016, pre-COVID. COVID has changed a lot of things, but 
pre-COVID, this what he's saying makes a lot of sense. Um, you need to view streaming in the same way that we've always viewed publishing. Same thing. You are being paid per spin, not per sale. It's not the same thing. So streaming royalties are not a whole lot different than publishing royalties. Physical sales may simply no longer be something we can count on. And that's a very hard pill to swallow. So excuse me for my burping. This is, uh, thank you, Zach, for, for tuning in. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So look, here, here it is. Here it is broken down. He's basically saying people are confusing streaming royalties with physical sale royalties or physical sales when what they should be comparing it to is publishing royalties. Publishing royalties are closer to what a streaming royalty is than, say, physical sales. And that the, because physical sale revenue doesn't exist anymore for bands, that they need to start focusing on touring and on merch more than they did to find new ways to earn money. But the rea- the sad reality is, is just that there's just, there's no money in the, in the selling of music in that same way, unless you are a band with a dedicated fan base that is willing to spend, you know, money. Like there's a great example. I was just talking about this with Bob in the comments here. I was talking about this with Bob yesterday. It pertains to our conversation. Um, is this almost over? Oh, my God. Oh, no. These are the tweets, but I am not going to uh, read the tweets because we already read the thing. This is what I said to Bob yesterday, and we've definitely said it once before on this channel. If you have a thousand people that loyally follow you and support your artistic endeavors, meaning that they buy whatever you're putting out. Let's say you make T-shirts. If you have... If you have a thousand people spending a hundred dollars a year, think about those numbers. One thousand people spending a hundred dollars per year. How much is that per month? How much is that per month? Let's take let's take a look at the numbers. Let us take a look at oh, that's a clock function. We want the thing. So I because I just can't do math. Um, one hundred divided by twelve is eight dollars and thirty cents. If you can get a thousand people to spend eight dollars and thirty cents a month every month all year long on what you do artistically, whether that's p- putting out a shirt, a song, whatever, then you are making six figures of income. Bottom line, before before um, before taxes and overhead and stuff, you were making six figures in income. A thousand people, eight dollars and thirty cents each per month for twelve months total. And you are making it. You're making it. Um, Spotify's total monthly uh, active users grew 18% year over year to 406. So there's 406 million people during the fourth quarter of 2021. So there's all, all close to half a billion people. Uh, it's paid premium subscribers grew 16, uh, 16% to 180. 180 million while it's ad supported monthly active users increased 19% to 236 million. Um, But Spotify, apparently Spotify has never turned a full year profit since it's being listed in 2018. A major part of Spotify's expenses are the royalty fees that the streaming platform has to pay to the music artists and the license holders. So how about that? 
Joe says the riot stickers jingle is infectious. I take it with me throughout my days. It's right up there with the one eight seven seven cars for kids commercial on my list of songs that make me want to smash my TV. I really enjoyed it. The first few thousand times it played in my head though. Um, Sharpie says you would have to play a 15 song album about 250 times to cover the cost of the CD or the album, but subtract the cost of uh, to mail the CD or album plus shipping. You want to know something? What that's, but that's doable. I could easily imagine. Okay. So I can imagine listening to one album that like, I really get into. I could easily listen to it 250 times in a year. If it's like something like, let's say if it's, especially if it's like a 30, let's say it's like a 30 minute album, like uh, Blood Visions by Jay Retard. And that's an album I can listen to 250 times in a year, easily, hands down. Uh, so I guess it would, I guess it would pay for itself. It would, it would work. Um, Crazy White Boy says, I know there's many artists making uh, most of their money on YouTube. I mean, listen, if you can figure out how to get your account monetized and you are making, you know, if you have 250,000 subscribers and each video that you have is, you know, getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of watch hours, not views. You didn't hear what I said. I didn't say views. I said, watch hours. Watch hours is what YouTube counts. They don't care about views. Views don't matter the same amount as watch hours then you, yes, you could be making money on YouTube as well. Um, maybe Simmons and Only were kind of ahead of the curve going with the crazy making, going crazy making merch. I mean, yeah, they, they and Jerry has done very well in merch, hasn't he? I mean, Gene too, both of them. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. We It went way longer than I intended to, like every show does. It's supposed to be an hour long. We were doing really well until we got to the Spotify. The Spotify uh, part really tripped us up. That's what messed us up big time. But before that, this was going really well. I mean, it didn't. I don't know. We'll, 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 we'll uh, I'll, I'll do some polls. I'm very curious to know if you guys liked tonight's show. Um, you know, what worked, what could work better? You know, <laughs> Bob goes, wait, go for it. I spoke to Bob on the phone for four and a half hours yesterday, by the way. There was no stream. It was a private podcast between Bob and I. We spoke for four and a half hours. And just recently, I was on Bob's show uh, on his Thunder Grunt channel on, here on YouTube. We did four hours on, he has a show called Shrimp Night. Um, so there's that. And it's funny, when I was thinking about like what I was going to call this show, I was literally thinking about Shrimp Night, like how... Could I, you know, make like a title? And then I was thinking late night from us. And then I was thinking, no, that's stupid. I'll just do night from us. Uh, and still it's, you know, just it's it's parallel to shrimp night. It's still parallel to shrimp night in that way. So that's my that's my homage to to shrimp night. Um, but no, I'd really like to hear feedback about today's show. Let me know what you guys think. What would, what, what should I do? What could I do differently to make it better? Um, Cause like I said, I want to do this more. Uh, it's not going to take up all of our time here on the show because we do so much here on the channel, but it's just another thing that I'd like to do. Uh, so peace and hair grease. And do you know about the Patreon? Cause that's how like, that's another way to generate revenue and make money. 
and give you guys really cool, interesting content that you're not going to find anywhere else on the internet. Let me let me pitch my little spiel for you. I'll see you next time. We're going to be doing a lot of live stream stuff this weekend at Genre Blast, I think. Hopefully, if time allows for it. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. (laughs) So right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. (laughs) The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.